when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Welcome to FT Politics, the Financial Times' weekly discussion on what's happening in Westminster. I'm Sebastian Payne, and in this week's episode, we'll be discussing Jeremy Corbyn's response to the Russia spy attack in Salisbury and Philip Hammond's first spring statement. I'm delighted to be joined by George Parker, the FT's political editor, chief political correspondent Jim Picard, economics editor Chris Giles, and deputy comment editor Miranda Green. Thank you all for joining. And if you like this episode of FT Politics, don't forget to subscribe through the usual channels to receive it automatically every Saturday morning. The Salisbury Skies found a road on this week, with Theresa May pointing the finger squarely at Russia for the attempted murder of Sergei and Yulia Skripal. Britain's allies, Germany, France and the United States all agreed with her and promised full support. Most MPs across the House of Commons did too, with one notable exception – Jeremy Corbyn, the opposition leader's unconventional views on foreign policy, came to the fore as he refused to blame Russia for what's happened. Before we get to that, George Parker, let's just begin with a quick update on the whole thing. What do we know since last week and what has Theresa May done? Well, Theresa May's uh, given a statement to the House of Commons where she's announced the most sweeping sanctions really against Russia for a generation in response to the Salisbury attacks, the expulsion of 23 Russian diplomats, which we expect to take place over the next few days. We've had the threat of assets being seized, travel bans, the usual suite of government responses. But you sense very much this is just the first instalment. The British government is very much expecting a Russian response and then there'll be an escalation from there. But separately, there's an international track, of course, that the Prime Minister is pursuing through the United Nations, through NATO at a meeting in Brussels on Thursday, and then next week at the European Union, where their summit will be discussing the attack in Salisbury. So there's an international track as well. And separately, she's made a visit to Salisbury itself and actually having uh, seen a number of her visits to areas suffering from trauma, notably the Grenfell Tower site, which was a total disaster from her point of view. This trip to Salisbury went a lot better. I think she made a few friends down there as well. And she fist bumped someone in the audience, which was a rare occurrence from the Prime Minister. Jim Picard, as I said, in that House of Commons statement on Wednesday, Theresa May announced these sanctions, but Jeremy Corbyn failed to agree with her with that, and the Conservative MPs were very angry, and they were hurling shame and all this sort of stuff across the House there. You know, for listeners who aren't maybe so fair with Mr Corbyn's world perspective, why do you think he didn't side with the Prime Minister on this? So we had a dress rehearsal for this on Monday, didn't we, where Theresa May made an initial statement, and then he was not very equivocal in support. He was kind of umming and ahhing about what had happened. And a lot of Labour MPs had gone to the leader's office and complained and said, look, you really need to step this up. We need to have a united response to this really horrific attack on British soil. And he just ignored their advice. And I was sat in my often vantage point looking down so that I could see the Labour ranks from that side of the house. From the press gallery. From the the press gallery on Wednesday. And I've seen Labour MPs looking unhappy with Corbyn before, but I don't think I've ever seen such 
visible, visceral sort of shock on their faces. I mean, you could just see they weren't hiding it at all. And talking to them afterwards, they were variously um, disgusted was one word, embarrassed was another one. I mean, they were really upset, actually, about what their leader had said. And it's the first major break between the PLP, the Parliamentary Labour Party, and Jeremy Corbyn since June's general election. Because on things like borrowing and spending and austerity and cuts, you know, there are differences of approach between the right and the left of the Labour Party, but they could get behind that manifesto. But on foreign policy, that's where you see the real split. And you saw that, George, with the MPs who were speaking against Mr Corbyn, that, you know, Yvette Cooper, who, mm. uh, former minister and leadership contender against Mr Corbyn, gave a very different approach. And there's even been an early day motion signed by um, quite a few Labour MPs who have made very clear that they are with the government on this matter. And essentially comes down to Mr Corbyn's worldview, which, you know, he hasn't really changed his mind on anything in 30 odd years. So we shouldn't be surprised he maintains his worldviews on this, which is there's very sceptical of intervention, very sceptical of the West and of America. Mm. And so this is really a bit of a fault line because it requires attacking Russia. Well, indeed. Uh, and in fact, there was a copy of the Morning Star newspaper visible on the bench behind Jeremy Corbyn as he made his response to Theresa May. And as you say, his worldview hasn't changed. It hasn't changed from the era when the, we had the Soviet Union, the communist era, to an era where Russia is basically run by Vladimir Putin, a man who's probably secreted away about £300 billion pounds worth of Russian state assets, someone who basically authorises the assassination of people in British territory. So it's a remarkable state of affairs. As Jim said, the anger is is really quite deep-seated. People were talking about resigning from the front bench to talks cheap. None of them actually did that. But I was speaking to one senior Labour MP today who was drawing comparisons, and obviously not to overdo this, but he was talking about the Darkest Hour film, the Churchill film, where Clement Attlee came to the support of Winston Churchill. And he basically said, you know, you have to start by doing the right thing. And uh, what he'd seen Jeremy Corbyn do in the House of Commons this week, he considered to be derogation of his duty as the leader of the opposition. So to answer Seb's question from earlier about what is the mindset of Jeremy Corbyn and the people around him is that um, some of them are communists. So, for example, Andrew Murray, who's currently doing a lot of work in the leader's office and is the chief of staff at Unite, he belonged to the Communist Party of Great Britain until a year ago. Um, You've got Seamus Milne, who was a columnist at The Guardian, who's now a very senior sort of communications advisor and strategic advisor to Corbyn. And there's a track record of Seamus Milne articles where you can see, I mean, only in 2015, he was saying in Russian terms, Vladimir Putin is centrist, uh, <laughs> centrist Vlad. and um, A melt, I believe. Yeah, and you, you, could, you could see columns where Seamus Milne suggested that the West was to blame for Russia's um, aggression in eastern Ukraine. And we'd kind of fomented that by NATO pushing too hard eastwards. And I think the other attitude you have from Corbyn is that on the Iraq war, he was in a relative minority in the House of Commons. So he's been here before in terms of finding himself at odds with the loud thrust of the media and the government and a lot of the opposition in the Iraq war. And he would obviously consider himself vindicated on that particular one. But others have looked further back to Kosovo, haven't they, where he was wrong? Yeah, and as Jim says, he's sceptical of the advice the British intelligence service has given. But bear in mind, he was privy to the same briefings as Theresa May on what they discovered. As a member of the Privy Council. As a member of the Privy Council. He was briefed on Privy Council terms. And what it boils down to is he was presented by a set of facts by the Prime Minister's most senior advisers, And he preferred to give Vladimir Putin the benefit of the doubt over the people he was being advised by in this country. 
and as a prospective British Prime Minister, that's quite a serious position to be in. Just to go back to a point you made there, Jim, about people around Jeremy <coughs> Corbyn. As you said, Seamus Mill has been under a lot of scrutiny this week. And someone posed the question to me, you know, is this going to do it for Seamus? And I can't really see why it would, because he is very much central to the Corbyn project. He's one of the earliest members of staff to join the leader's office. And his worldview is very much in line with Jeremy's. And I think that Mr Corbyn, you know, he doesn't often pay a lot of notice to a lot of detail of domestic policy, but on foreign affairs, he really does care. He was chair of Stop the War Coalition, has led many marches and spoken to many rallies about foreign mm. policy causes. So you couldn't dismiss this as someone who didn't know what they were talking about or what have you. I think he knows very much what he is talking about. But the key thing is the view about British intelligence, of about NATO, of about the West, of Mr. Milner, Mr. Corbyn is quite out of step with the mainstream. I would look at it through the opposite end of the telescope and I would say, will the PLP be able to get rid of Seamus Milne? And the actual question will be, will people like Seamus Milne and Corbyn be able to get rid of the PLP? And what this demonstrates is you've seen people in quite senior positions such as Neil Griffith, who's the Shadow Defence Secretary, and Emily Thornbury, Shadow Foreign Secretary. And in an ideal world, Jeremy Corbyn would not, not have someone like Neil Griffith in that role, she is of the soft left. So uh, in Blairite terms, she's quite left wing, but she's nothing like as left wing as, as the Corbynistas. They would love to be able to refresh the party in their own image. But unfortunately for them, it's a process that takes an awful lot of time. And you have to have an awful lot of support at ground level. Even with your momentum troops out there, it takes a long time to, to deselect and reselect people. So it could take decades before you can have proper Marxists in every position in the party. And until then, they're going to be frustrated and have all these arguments again and again. It's got Gramsci's long march through the institutions and it can take some time. Indeed. And I guess this is the question of whether the Cold War between the Labour leader's office and Labour MPs is thawing at all, George, because there's, as Jim was saying earlier, essentially being a truce since last year's election, because it looked as if they were on the cusp of power. Mr Corbyn was one more heave away from victory and come an election, that might happen. But when you look at what some of those MPs were saying in the comments <coughs> and their statements since then, they must think to themselves, well, do I still support this man? to lead the country? Do I still support his prospectus for the country if I disagree with him on this big issue? And obviously, the, the Russia question is not going away. As you said, there's a tit-for-tat that is going to continue. And clearly, Russia's relationship with the UK and the West will be a big issue for years to come. Yeah, I mean, there will be a lot of soul-searching. I don't think anybody changed their mind on the moderate wing of the Labour Party just because Jeremy Corbyn did better than expected in the June election last year. I also don't think many of them think that Jeremy Corbyn can win the next election. They they have kept their heads down because they think it would be completely inappropriate to do so when Labour are on the rise and all the rest of it. But you speak to lots of them and they wonder how can this man win over the 60-odd seats from the Tories they need to in the next election, particularly when he's adopting the kind of policies he's been adopting this week in terms of national security, because it's not just national security, which generally the public don't care too much about foreign affairs, but when it looks like it's the Labour leader being soft on law and order and crime issues as well. That's fatal or can be fatal for an opposition leader. So they haven't changed their mind about Jeremy Corbyn. I still think they're playing a long game, hoping against hope that something goes wrong. Yeah, and a lot of those Labour MPs think that there was a big surge, like a sort of protest vote against Brexit last year, which wouldn't happen again if the next election was, say, 21 or 22, when we're through the Brexit process. And I think there's been a Sky poll today, hasn't there, said where public opinion on the whole Scripple affair has got... Is it 60% it's about 18% think Corbyn is doing a good job to about 60% for Theresa May. Mm. But interestingly tonight, so we had him after PMQs or after the May statement yesterday being all sort of prevaricating. And then in the evening we had the clarification where they said, oh, no, no, Jeremy definitely thinks 
It was Russia. He said that, I think, didn't he? Um, but now we've got another change of stance where he's kind of U-turned again. He's done an article in The Guardian where he's urged the government to take a calm, measured approach. He's urged Theresa May not to rush way ahead of the evidence and calling for a thorough and painstaking criminal investigation. So he's still kind of dancing on a pin over this and, and not saying that Russia is culpable. And at the same time, he's also um, sort of firing off elsewhere and saying the government shouldn't be cozying up to the Saudis. So, I mean, yeah. trying to be sort of morally uh, moral equivalents there. Well, he's all over the place, isn't he? But I suppose the flip side of the argument about Jeremy Corbyn is it does give Theresa May a chance to show some strong leadership. So and this is one she... area where she actually comes across well, national security and yeah. defence. Yeah, exactly. I mean, given her pedigree at the Home Office... This is one area where she does speak with some credibility and the fact that she's managed to empathise with people in Salisbury is an achievement in itself given Theresa May's record. And I think, yeah, I mean, it does give her an opportunity. She's had a bit of a bounce after the Mansion House speech on Brexit. I think she's generally regarded as having handled the government's response to the Salisbury attack reasonably well. So she's in one of her periodic upswings. But as with all of Theresa May's Mm. upswings, they never last all that long. Exactly. And all I would say in Corbyn's defence, if you like, is that I think there is public support where it's just a question of expelling 23 Russian diplomats. If it becomes a tit for tat where they escalate and then we escalate and things get worse and worse, who who knows where public support would would or wouldn't go? Well, I think public support would quickly evaporate should uh, Theresa May find herself in a position where she's advising the England World Cup team not to travel to Russia in the summer because... If you look at the opinion polling on that, there's very little support for a boycott by the English football team. Just to flip the camera on this entirely and look at the Conservatives' links to Russia. Now, a lot of Mr Corbyn's outliers, people like the Guardian columnist Owen Jones, who often puts forward messages that the leader's office wants to get out there, you know... They've been saying, well, the Conservative Party's taken all this money from Russians and people linked to the Putin regime. And that is, I think, a legitimate criticism of the Conservative Party. And MPs I've spoken to this week said, you know, look, we need to make a very clear line between British citizens who are donating, that's fine, and people who are linked to the Putin regime. You know, there's a wife of a former Putin minister Mm. who's given a large amount of money to the Conservatives. It seems to me if they're going to try and politicise this, which I'm sure they will, and they already are, you know, Theresa May really went hard on Mr Corbyn in the House of Commons chamber. They need to make sure their own house is in order, George. Yeah, I agree with that. I think they are legitimate complaints. I think the criticism of Corbyn on that was the timing of it. You know, did he need to raise this as an issue at a time when a nerve agent had been used on the streets of a British town. Mm. But there is a serious point that he's on to there. I think the Conservative Party do need to clean out their stables. Uh, you know, I think the Conservative Party have taken a lot of money from these the Russian oligarchs and people with links to the Putin regime indeed. But you know, if you look back to the Litvinenko murder, it was the Labour government seems to be quite happy for Russian investment to keep pouring into the London economy, pouring into the London property market. So I think both parties have actually been turning a bit of a blind eye to where this money's been coming from because it's helped to keep the London economy and the British economy afloat. Yeah, and by coincidence, I wrote this week that Peter Mandelson's advisory firm Global Council has just got a new contract advising on climate change with Oleg Deripaska's company, EN+, which I thought was quite interesting. Mm-hmm. And finally, George, one thing I have been quite struck by is how much Theresa May has managed to rally allies for this cause together because a lot of people have mm. opined about Britain being isolated on the world stage and although there was a bit of confusion over the United States' stance and then France's stance which was both later clarified so they were fully behind but it's also using the EU as well which obviously Britain is heading towards the exit door but I think a lot of people are saying well actually the EU is a very useful ally if we're going to try and impose sanctions on Russia because the might of the 28 countries is a lot more than just Britain alone. 
It's a reminder of one of the reasons why Britain has been in the European Union for the last 45 years, having the economic weight of the EU behind it. Because if you look at Theresa May's options for building an international coalition, the UN option is obviously, there's a huge obstacle there, which is the Russian veto in the Security Council. NATO, obviously the military options are fairly limited when dealing with Russia. The really big tool in the toolbox is is sanctions that you can impose. And of course, the EU already has sanctions on Russia after the Ukraine and Crimea interventions. And the question is whether the supportive rhetoric, particularly from France and Germany this week, can be turned into real action at the European Council next week, because we know very well that European countries all have their own relationships with Russia, the Greeks, for example, the Italians, countries with very high dependence on Russian gas exports as well. So actually turning that rhetoric in the EU into serious action and further sanctions, I think will be a real test for Theresa May next week. And Number 10 was very pleased to get that statement from the White House saying that the UK is the US's greatest ally but next week they could be saying something totally different. That's it, and also the council meeting you referenced, George, is also a critical one for Brexit, which we'll come to next week. But, of course, that is the moment at which Theresa May is hoping to get the transition-slash-implementation phase good. So it's been very much an, a, 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 a summit of two halves of Britain and its foreign policy. Yes, well, Theresa May was only going to be at the summit. There's a two-day summit. She was only going to be there on Thursday to talk about Brexit. She was going to then clear off, as has this become the norm, to allow the rest of the EU to talk about Britain behind our backs on the Friday. But it seems likely that there will be a discussion about Russia. That could move on into Friday. That could disrupt the Prime Minister's travel plans. And she could unusually be there for both days. Obviously, the most exciting political moment of the week was the spring statement. Philip Hamm delivered an update on the health of the UK economy, and the man often called Eeyore was surprisingly tiggerish and upbeat. He was welcoming better-than-expected growth figures, rising employment, shrinking deficit, and falling inflation. But although the picture for the immediate future was pretty good, further in the future was not so rosy. Chris Giles, let's begin with an overall view. This was the first spring statement we've had, so there was no tax and spend. It was just an update on the health of the economy. And essentially, Philip Hammond, who, as I said, is known for being a bit a bit of a glum bucket, looked pretty happy and cheerful about things. He made some good jokes. He was happy. He was cheerful. He said the economy was going great guns, really. And then we looked at the Office for Budget Responsibility, the independent fiscal watchdog's report, and it was a bit some hmm, a bit meh, a bit sort of ho-hum about the economy. So they did upgrade growth very marginally for this year, 0.1 of a percentage point from 1.4 to 1.5%. But then they said, well, actually, we think the economy is a little bit overheating. It's going a bit too strong, so it needs to slow down. So for the rest of the forecast for 2019, 20, 21, 22, we've got very slow growth, not going above 1.5%. And over the whole period, actually a little bit down on where the forecasts were in November. So Really, they sort of poured cold water on all this upbeat view. And then on the public finances, they said, yes, taxes have been coming in quite a lot better than we thought. So their borrowing will be lower in every year. But it was really not as much as we thought. It was a maximum of £5 billion a year, which is really not much. It's a quarter of a percent of national income. And a lot lower than the £10 billion quite a lot of people thought would be the upgrade or the improvement in the borrowing forecast. So again, a little bit uh, not what the Chancellor was hoping. And Miranda Green, I guess Philip Hammond was quite upbeat because his colleagues want him to be in a way. that He's often been criticised by politicians, you know, within the cabinet, people like Michael Gove and Boris Johnson and even I think Theresa May for being very safe and steady and not talking Britain up. Whereas 
exactly what he was trying to do, even if, as Chris said, the evidence wasn't necessarily there to back it up. You know, we still have huge piles of debt. I think that's true, but I also think that he made a mistake in what the public cares about. Because even those glimmers of good news that there were, you know, on borrowing and on the deficit, are actually bad news for the Conservative government because they just encourage arguments about it now being time to turn on the taps of public spending. And so actually, their relative success, even where it exists, lands them with a whole new set of very, very serious problems are and in fact a gift to the Labour opposition. So I think in a sense his diggerishness, his optimism is politically misplaced, even if you know there are a few little bits of justification for it in the numbers. It's interesting because I think the public want four things. They're quite into austerity. They want a balanced budget. They want debt to be falling, the debt burden to be falling. They don't want to pay any more taxes and they want more spending. Now you can't have all of those four unless you have a very strong economy. You can if your economy is doing very well. And the OBR's forecast gave them two of those fours. It didn't give them a balanced budget and it doesn't give more spending. In fact, the spending levels projected into the future are really tight. So we've already got problems in our public services and they're just going to get tighter. We Austerity under these forecasts is not in any way going away. Exactly. And so I think there's a real expectations management problem with having had headlines that he'd you know, already met George Osborne's deficit targets, etc. Because when you actually look what's about to happen in the real world, you've got 11 million people about to face more welfare cuts. You've got local government not just creaking but really at crisis point and as austerity continues there will be so much more discontent than there has been you know even in the seven years of austerity we've had so far so I think it's actually storing up a lot of problems. That's not to say that Philip Hammond's kind of relatively downbeat competence isn't an advantage for the Conservative because you and I have discussed here Seb so many times the danger of the Tories losing their kind of brand identifier as competent managers of the economy so I mean that is something that he delivers for them. One thing that I was quite struck by was that Philip Hammond very much was putting forward those Conservative arguments you know about being prudent about not overly spending about taxation and it did strike me that a lot of those are things that the Conservatives should have said during the government to which a former advisor of Theresa May texted me not long after I tweeted that to point out Philip Hammond had made a massive gaffe during his first appearance and then that was why he was sort of locked in a cupboard for the rest of the election campaign. So I think, you know, he's a great chancellor for this moment now, for being a calm, level-headed person when things are looking a bit rocky. And I guess, Chris, this brings us to the big Brie question. We love to bring everything back to Brexit at the FT. And obviously, the OBR's made all these projections. And some people will say, well, the OBR gets all these projections wrong. And if you look at the graphs at what it predicted, it's consistently out. So how much value is there in what they've put forward for the next few years? Because Philip Hammond seems to have predicated quite a lot on what the OBR is saying for the future. I think Philip Hammond has made quite a strange decision, in fact. He said that in the autumn, if the public finances, I mean the, the projections for them compared with his targets, are better, so if he still gets some good news in the autumn, then he will spend more. Now that means instead of taking control, so the big advantage from Brexit we thought we'd get if we left. He's actually giving up control over the most important aspect of government, taxes and spending, to the OBR. So the OBR's decision on whether it thinks the economy is a bit overheating or not, or what it thinks will happen to productivity, these are really difficult decisions. And no one has any particular 
clue of exactly what's going to happen. You've got to take informed guesses. And he's really letting the government's strategy on public spending be governed by the OBR's decisions, politicising those. And I think that's really quite dangerous, in fact. I think this is actually a really profound point that Chris has made in his column this week and again here today, because the real concern is that the public, as they see these cuts bite and as the pips really start to squeak, will actually see it as abdicating responsibility for the things that they care about. And, you know, no electorate votes in a spirit of gratitude for what's been achieved, even if that looks a bit more like balancing the books than it did three years ago. They vote about what's going to happen on your proposals for the future. And if that is more pain, you still have a political problem if you're the Tories facing a Corbyn Labour Party that's promising the earth. In the run-up to the spring statement, Chris, we heard from loads of Conservative MPs that we need to open up the spending taps and start putting some money towards the NHS, Defence and all these other frontline public services that are really under the cost. And I think, as someone's just saying, you know, local government in particular, you know, one cabinet minister this week said to me it's at the absolute bare bones and when we have the big comprehensive spending review coming I think it's next year then they'll have to relook at that so I guess throwing it forward to the actual big budget in the autumn do you think it's still most likely that it will start to dole out some extra spending or do you think things are going to look a bit more difficult by then? I think let's put Brexit aside I think even by then we won't know the economic effects of Brexit so we're saying there might well be a few billion you can spread around but a few billion isn't what we're talking about when we're talking about the real pain in public services we're talking about things that are much bigger than that and it seems that this government has at the moment no plans to go for what is actually probably needed which is a really big strategic look of what the level of spending you need to provide decent public services are and you can disagree you can have political disagreements about what that is but really go for that and then say and that almost certainly means higher taxes not necessarily immediately but over the next five years because in the 2020s when ageing really hits Britain we have some very very severe fiscal problems and If you have a government that just says, oh, well, if things are a little bit better, we might dollop a few lollipops out here and there every time we get some good news. That's not going to look like anything strategic. And you're going to lose the ability to say, well, actually, to the nation, maybe we have to pay some more tax. And that's the big thing they're missing. And I think for the Conservatives, Miranda, it is this wider ideological question of how big should the state be? Because following the new Labour government, when David Cameron came in with the Lib Dems, the obvious, I think, the public mood and the government was a smaller state and so things were cut back. Um, as we said, local government, um, although NHS spending did continue to rise, as Tory MPs love to continue to point out. But we sort of reached a point now where it feels like the public mood is that we want a state that is a bit bigger than it is now. If you look at the signal that was sent from the EU referendum from last year's general election, and as Chris was saying on health spending, that's a area where it needs to grow a bit bigger. So even though the Conservatives are still the party of low taxation and small state, it might not be quite as small as it is now. And I guess the problem for them is how do you frame that? Because as soon as you talk about raising taxes or this idea that's going around of of increasing income tax to fund the NHS, then Jeremy Corbyn will come on and say, well, actually, you've conceded that Labour is right and we actually need to start spending. That's a difficult one for them. It's very difficult because, it, again, as we've spoken about on the issue of university finance and tuition fees, you then, as a Conservative minister, find yourself arguing for something that's a couple of steps towards the Labour position, but not the full way, which is a really unhappy position to be in because it's not distinctive and it sounds like not enough. Having said that, 
I think if there was some bold thinking on the sort of taxation that we might need in the future, for example, on the NHS, it might be more palatable to people if they felt that it was worth it. Um, you know, on things like raising corporation tax, it's a bit more difficult for Conservative ministers because it seems as, as such a Conservative thing to do to bring corporation tax down the whole time. But, you know, there have been some ideas floating around about how if we need to maintain very significant contributions to the EU, for example, to maintain those trade links, maybe business should bear some of that cost. So again, you're moving towards slightly more kind of hypothecation in how you ask for more money. Oh, well, I think we should remember that actually the last time a government chose to raise tax rates quite significantly, which was in 2002 with Gordon Brown for the NHS, he planned that quite carefully over a couple of years or so. And really, they were banging the drum, sort of making the point that you need to fund these services carefully. And in the end, one opinion pollster said that was the most popular tax rise ever in history and still is popular because the public saw it as money going into the NHS. And so it isn't impossible, but as Miranda says, it is difficult for the Tories to do it. And finally, Chris, just on some other economic indicators, just give us your view on what productivity and inflation is looking like based on what Philip Hammond and the LBR have said. Well, inflation is definitely coming down because the big increases in prices after the Brexit vote when the pound fell are beginning to fall out of the annual comparison now. The only question is how quickly they come down. If they come down slower, then we're likely to see more interest rate rises uh, than if they come down quicker. Uh, And on productivity, that's the big unknown for the UK economy. And if anyone tells you they know what's going to happen, they're lying. (laughs) And that's it for this week's episode. Thank you very much to George, Jim, Chris and Miranda for joining us. We'll be back next week for another instalment. FT Politics was presented by Sebastian Payne and produced by Anna Dedder and Joshua Oliver. Until next time, thanks for listening. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.